You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to uh, this BJSM podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Bruckner. I'm a sports physician uh, from Australia. And um, my guest today is Professor Tim Noakes from South Africa. Tim, uh, I guess, will be known to just about everyone who uh, follows BJSM. Tim's the Discovery Health Professor of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of Cape Town the author of uh, The Runner's Bible, The Law of Running, uh, and has a wide range of research interests, and one of which we're going to talk about uh, today, and that's the subject of Waterlogged. Tim recently put out a a book entitled Waterlogged, and uh, we're going to chat a little bit about water and what it means to to the athlete today. So Tim, welcome. We're going to chat about water. It's a pretty important substance, H2O, you know, 71% of the Earth's surface. Uh, we, We seem to be obsessed with water these days. You know, we have... Uh, you've got to have in your hand at any one time a bottle of, uh, of bottled water. Uh, we're told we've got to drink lots of water. I mean, uh, that wasn't the case when uh, when we were growing up. What's what's happened? Why are we so obsessed with water these days? Well, I don't want to jump in right at the start, but I think commercial pressures have made water a very a very productive commercial product, and I think that's the problem. We, we, as you say, when we grew up, we drank when we were thirsty. And we drank water. We didn't drink any of the other fluids that are now available. And I think we followed our biology, as humans have been for 3.5 million years. We drank when we got thirsty, and we usually chose water because that's what was available. And tragically, industry came along and said, well, actually, we want to sell more products, so we're going to force humans to believe that their brains don't can't tell them when they should be drinking. And I think that that's the problem we live in a society now where we're forever told that we don't know how our bodies run and we shouldn't be listening to what our bodies tell us. And I I believe that's the opposite. I believe that your body will tell you what you need. And if you're drinking to thirst, then you're drinking optimally. Well, because really, for many years now, I mean, uh, and I'm, I'm guilty of it myself, doctors and sports scientists and coaches, we've been telling athletes that you've got to keep your fluids up, you know, don't wait until you're thirsty, that's too late, Uh, drink constantly before your game or your run or during it afterwards, it's drink, 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 drink. So obviously, uh, you know, your thoughts on that have have changed. What what led you to sort of start thinking, well, maybe this is not quite right? (laughs) Well, Peter, in May 1981, I wrote an article saying, the most important thing you can do in a marathon is to drink all the water in sight. And, and with that which you can't put into your mouth, you should splash over your body. So that was my state, statement in ni- May 1981. In June 1981, a lady wrote to me she'd run the Comrades Marathon and she developed hyponatremia in which her blood sodium concentration had fallen. And she had been unconscious for four days. And she said, why did I develop it? And I said, I have no idea whatsoever. But I said, I'm determined to find out. Well, it took me a couple of years to find out. And then it became absolutely apparent that she'd overdrunk. And she was the first case in the world. And it was also the first time that a race in South Africa of 90 kilometers or 56 miles had provided drinking stations every 1.6 kilometers or every mile. And it was the first opportunity in South Africa for someone to drink for eight or nine hours uh, re- repeatedly every five or ten minutes, as much as they liked. That was probably and your fault, was it? Because of your, it was your fault because of your article. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're to blame. I very quickly, <laughs> I very quickly changed my tune and said, uh, actually, you should stop over drinking. And 
And I predicted by the 1990s that there would be an increase in this, the incidence of hyponatremia. And I predicted there'd be death, and I knew it would be amongst women running four to five hours in a marathon. Unless they were warned, they shouldn't overdrink. What happened was the sports drink industry came along at exactly that moment and started to market itself and market the idea that drinking a lot of fluid was very important. They developed this fake disease or false disease of dehydration, which is not a disease. It's purely a physiological state. And they got runners petrified that if they ran without drinking, they'd become dehydrated and die of heat stroke. So sadly, it was an orchestrated campaign that was carefully thought out. And it worked brilliantly because runners started drinking a lot. Tragically, some of them died as a consequence. Well, Tim, just take us through what happens to the body. I mean, uh, you know, you're you're out there running a, a marathon. It's warmish weather. You know, you're very uh, keen to drink. You drink lots beforehand. You drink lots during the race. What happens to the fluid in the body uh, in that situation? Well, for most people, they're very fortunate. They'll actually pass out any excess urine, or else if they're drinking less and they're sweating, they'll still they'll be losing weight. They'll be losing water, so that they are, will not become overhydrated. The problem happens in people running slowly, let's say they're running a four to five hour marathon and it's a little bit cooler and they're getting the chance to drink every kilometer or every two kilometers. And the the people who run into trouble drink about 1.2 to 1.5 liters per hour and that is a, it's a real achievement to drink that much. Now, normally if you drink 1.5 liters per hour and let's say you're sweating at, at 500 ml per hour, you're gaining a liter per hour, well you should actually just urinate that fluid out and so all that would happen if you were over-drinking under normal circumstances is you'd just be passing so much urine, you'd soon realize I'm over-drinking. Unfortunately, what happens in these people, they secrete the hormone antidiuretic hormone, which at very low concentration stops urine production. So these people are drinking heavily and they're not passing urine, and so they think, my gosh, I'm getting dehydrated. Then they start to feel strange after about four hours of this. Their blood sodium concentration has fallen, and the brain starts to swell, and they start to lose consciousness. They become vague. They don't know what's going on, and they ascribe that to dehydration, so they drink more. And ultimately, they collapse because the brain is swollen so much that it can no longer function properly. And under those circumstances, they can die from from respiratory arrest. So why do some people uh, secrete this hormone and others don't? Is is that a genetic thing, or uh, do we know why? We don't know why because we've we studied people who've got, had the condition in they've manifest hyponatremia in an Ironman. We've put them in the laboratory, fed them fluids, plenty of fluids, and they've acted completely normally. In other words, they've urinated out the excess. So it's something to do with the running that causes the antidiuretic hormone over-secretion, and we don't know what it is. But it's certainly abnormal and inappropriate. And how common is it, do you think? I think probably 10 or 15% of the population have it. And if they, and then, but they still have to overdrink. So you've got to overdrink and you've got to have this condition. And that explains why hyponatremia is relatively uncommon because we, quite a lot of people overdrink. We, we suspect probably 20, 30, 40% of runners in a marathon overdrink, yet very few become hyponatremic. So, they protect it because they don't secrete excessive antidiuretic hormone. 
And I guess uh, the important thing is once they do collapse, you know, at the end of a race or during a race, that it's, it's recognised. I mean, traditionally, you know, I've been in uh, tents at the end of marathons and lots of people there and, and everyone assumes that they're dehydrated or, uh, or got uh, heat problems, so they're giving them fluid. Absolutely, and that, that's fatal, that's catastrophic if you do this to a person with hyponatremia. And we think all the deaths that have occurred probably are caused by giving intravenous fluids to people who are, who are hyponatremic. So our statement now is that you may not give intravenous fluids to anyone who, if you don't know what their blood sodium concentration is. So if the blood sodium concentration is below 130, and you, give, you should not give intravenous fluids because that will be fluid overloaded, not dehydrated. In fact, it's very simple. If you ask the patient, are they thirsty? If they say they're thirsty, then you can find some reason to give them fluids. But if they're not thirsty, it doesn't matter what condition they are in, they shouldn't be getting intravenous fluids. And this doesn't happen to uh, to two-hour 30 marathoners or three-hour th- uh, marathoners? Mm, no, it's almost... I don't think it's been described because they run too fast and they really can't drink enough during that time. They don't have the time because... To take in 1.5 liters an hour, you have to stop and drink and walk very slowly while you're digesting the fluids. So the message is don't, don't drink huge amounts when you're, uh, when you're running a race. Um, and then, again, for as far as uh, recognition of the, uh, the condition when it occurs, um, people may not have access to a blood uh, sodium level. What, uh, what then would make them suspicious? The the typical patient comes in and they're a bit confused. And I remember a classic case because we treated the patient and he was really confused. And I thought, and I asked him a few questions. I thought this guy's really stupid because he can't answer my very simple questions. Then we gave him 5% saline, which very quickly corrects mild hyponatremia. And within five minutes, he was telling me he's one of the leading businessmen in South Africa <laughs> and how he'd been to university and had all these degrees. <laughs> I thought, well, you should have seen yourself five minutes ago. You didn't look quite the same intellect at all. And so, so that's the point. They, they become very confused. And classically, they go and lie down, and they curl up in the sort of fetal position, and they don't want the light. For some reason, it seems to me the light causes a problem. And you really have to wake them up. You talk to them, and you ask them a question, and the minute you stop talking, they go back into this sort of confused state. That is very, very suspicious. Then if they lose consciousness, then you, you're pretty certain that you've got the condition. And the only differential diagnosis is really heat stroke because heat stroke can present also as loss of consciousness, confusion. But in that case, the rectal temperature will be above 41 degrees centigrade, whereas in hyponatremia, it'll usually be 38 degrees because they've, they've run so slowly, they'll have a low temperature. So the key is that if a patient has lost consciousness or is very confused, you have to think of this as the first diagnosis, particularly in someone who's run slowly in a race where there's lots of fluid available. And this presumably is when they're drinking plain water. But uh, what about these, you mentioned before, the sports drinks? I mean, don't they have sodium in them and, uh, and, and glucose and so on? Shouldn't that uh, prevent this problem? That's a great question. The reality is once you're secreting antidiuretic hormone, you retain water and you excrete sodium. So that the other diagnostic characteristic in these patients is that they have a very concentrated urine. So if you actually take the urine, you might find it's dark. And if you measure its sodium concentration, it's elevated. So any sodium that they take in, they actually excrete. And the treatment is to give them a very high sodium concentration in the, in the fluid that you give them. And then they pass lots of urine because that overrides the ADH effect. The only thing that can override the ADH effect is giving a very concentrated sodium 
a solution intravenously, and it's got to be three to five percent. Right. So the the sports drinks, however, have a much lower concentration than that. Correct. And and all you do as a sports drink, if you have this condition, is you retain the water and you pass out the sodium. Okay. So slower marathoners, particularly females, confused, stroke unconscious, uh, concentrated urine, low sodium. Um, have hypernatremia until proven otherwise, basically. Correct. Yeah. And uh, the, the treatment is spectacular, so that the if they're mildly confused, a high-sodium infusion will quickly correct that confusion. If they are profoundly unconscious with the sodium in the 120s or even below, we've had people in the 111, 112, they need sustained high, not high, but relatively high rates of of intravenous sodium, and they will start to urinate immediately. You give the infusion, and that will start to get the water coming out of the brain, and you will save their lives accordingly. You say there have been a number of deaths uh, as a result of this? Yes, we've got up to about 12 deaths, and most of them actually in military personnel, but there have been some in runners, and they, they're tragic because they're completely avoidable, completely preventable. Well, let's hope with this... Uh knowledge that it won't be the case. You, you talked about heat stroke. Uh, let, let's talk quickly about that because everyone you know, always assumes that dehydration, uh, you, know, you sweat, you get dehydrated, uh, your body temperature uh, you know, rises because your sweat can't keep up and, uh, and you get heat stroke and therefore you need fluids. I mean, uh, where are we wrong there? Well, that's the sort of catastrophe model I like to refer to it. And that ignores the fact that humans are successful. We're successful animals. And we're successful and hunting animals as well. And that's where we, our evolution took us. And if it was so easy for us to get heat struck, we wouldn't actually be human. We would have disappeared millions of years ago. So humans are designed to run in the heat. And that's why we sweat so much. The, the, the excess of sweating is a good thing because it lowers our body temperature. Now, what normally happens is the brain is in control. And if it is excessively hot, you simply run slower. We've studied people at 43 degrees centigrade race walking in the military over 25 kilometers and all that happens is as they get a little bit hot they slow down they go and sit down they have a drink and then they carry on and that's how the brain works it paces you so it changes your behavior and that is why heat stroke is so difficult to produce in the laboratory it's never been produced heat stroke is impossible to produce because you get the behavior change and the, the athlete simply slows down as soon as they get too hot so we've got a brain that should protect us when it doesn't protect us, there's something else going on. And one needs to look for drugs, we look, look for infections, uh, those sorts of factors, or a genetic predisposition. But even if you have a genetic predisposition, I think you have to have something else acting at the same time, be it drugs or starting the race with an infection. So the point is that, that heat stroke shouldn't occur in healthy people. And when it does occur, you've got to look for other factors that have caused it. Okay. Well, getting back to uh, to fluids, I mean, obviously, uh, we've got to be wary about too much uh, fluids, water in particular, in, in uh, something like a four-hour marathon. But So what would you recommend? Let's say you've got a, a, a patient who's uh, about to run a marathon, three and a half, four, four and a half hours, and they, they come to you and say, well, you know, what do, what do I have to take? How much fluid do I have to take before and during the race? My answer is always very simple. It's just drink to thirst. And if you don't get thirsty, don't drink. <laughs> it's as simple as that. But 
most of us can recognize thirst and you so you you just run and when you start to feel thirsty then you start drinking at the different aid stations and the reality is if you don't feel thirsty really you don't need to drink the point is in all our studies we show that people's responses are quite different so the best runners in the world can lose 10 to 12 percent of their body weight during a marathon and if you ask them at the finish they won't be particularly thirsty and that's my view, they, the greatest athletes are able to run despite a, a large weight losses. And if you force them to drink ahead of thirst, their performance is actually impaired, which is an interesting concept. Mm. On the other hand, there are other athletes who find that they don't like to, to run much. They don't like, they be, don't like, their bodies don't like to become dehydrated. And they drink plenty during exercise, and they may finish the race losing 2 to 3% of their body weight. Now, if they drank less and got thirsty, their performance would be impaired, just as would be the performance of a good runner if he drank ahead of thirst. So the, the laboratory data supports this, that your best performance is achieved when you drink only to thirst. And what about in a, in a more high-intensity sport, a game of football or something like that? You often see players coming to the sidelines or someone running out with a, with a drink and they're constantly being urged to drink. I mean, uh, what about a 90-minute uh, game of, of football? I mean, do people need to drink during that game? Again, I, I think the point is that the brain, when the brain is trying to slow you down and tell you things are wrong, one of the things it tells you is thirst. So oh. if you're becoming dehydrated, it'll tell you you're thirsty so you must drink. And we believe that your performance is optimized if you don't have thirst. So you, as long as you're drinking to thirst, you'll be fine. So those football players, if they are thirsty, they need to drink because their performance will be enhanced by the drinking. But again, they mustn't drink simply because the guy comes out onto the field and gives them fluids. Yep. They should be thirsty. But I suspect that they're all drinking relatively little in, in football because they have little opportunities to yeah, drink. Sure. All right. Well, that's, I mean, it's been fascinating, uh, Tim. I mean, uh, obviously, the, the message that uh, that you uh, want to get across is, is thirst is, is the key indicator, which is, as, as we started off the program, saying is exactly how, we, how it was when we were growing up all those many, many years ago. Precisely, and if I could add the point that, you know, we don't tell any other mammal on this earth when and how much they should drink. They all respond to thirst, so why should humans be different? And the only thing, the only difference is that, that you can sell a product to humans, and that's why you have to tell them when to drink. <laughs> well, that's a good note to finish on. Tim, thank you very much. For those who want more information, Tim has a book out called Waterlogged. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, book, takes through the, the history of, uh, of this interesting condition, and there's also some excellent papers in the, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine uh, that they can read. So, uh, uh, Professor Tim Noakes, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Peter. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.